What we need is a new conservatism. We need to be really careful about what we do. We want to do everything slowly. The change in society from the old people was slow because you need time to make sure you're right. Thank you for being part of 100 Climate Conversations. This is number 16 of the 100 Conversations happening every Friday. The series presents 100 visionary Australians that are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, climate change. We're broadcasting today in the boiler hall of the Powerhouse Museum. This actually used to be at the Ultimo Power Station. In the context of this architectural artefact, we shift our focus towards the innovations of the net zero revolution. We're of course coming to you from the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Powerhouse acknowledges the traditional custodians of ancestral homelands across all of their museums. Uh, we pay respect to elders past, present and future. I'm Craig Rucastle, I'll be your host today. Uh, we've lovely person is Bruce Pascoe, who we'll be getting to in a second. We're very lucky to have him here to talk to us. Bruce Pascoe is a Ewan Bunurong and Tasmanian man who's a renowned author and farmer who's devoted to research and implementation of First Nations agricultural practices and the regeneration of country. Uh, Pascoe has won numerous awards, including the Australian Council Award for Lifetime Achievement in Literature in 2018. We're thrilled to have him with us today. Uh, welcome, Bruce. Thanks for joining us here. Now, you're living and working on your farm in uh, Malakuta on Ewan country, and we're going to talk a lot about that farm. But I wanted to start just because whenever I hear Malakuta, it just immediately takes me back to those photos from 2019 mm. from those fires. Mm. And I wanted to ask first, how is Malakuta recovering? How is the area recovering? There have been a few houses built um, two years later. Um, but a, a lot of the people in Malakuta were renters, and so those people got nothing, lost everything, got nothing. Mm. And it's a real indictment of capitalism that um, the only people who got real assistance were landowners. And that's a conversation this country and the world will have to have. And has it changed? Has that meant a lot of people have left Malakuta that used to live there? Has it changed the, yeah, the town? Yeah, a, a few have left. Most have stayed. It's a pretty seductive town to live in, uh, socially and environmentally. But the, the town has changed. The mood isn't the same mm. as it was. There's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of pain still in the town mm. and it, it surfaces in uh, strange ways. So we will recover. We're a very strong town. We've got the support of country. Mm. We're surrounded by beaches and forest, and um, it's a beautiful place to live. You know, you will recover there, mm. but it does take a lot of time. Now, you have been a member of the Country Fire Authority for many years. So when the fires hit Malakuta, this is, it wasn't something new for you to be battling the fires. Was it very different, though, that year? It was incredibly different because we've never seen a fire like that. Malakuta was hit by a bomb. Mm. Uh, it was a, a, a huge column of gas and cinder that descended on the town and it was fire. The fire just fell out of the sky. And if it hit you, it hit you, you were gone. We didn't lose a life in the town of Malakuta. I lost a good mate of mine up at Genoa, mm. but he died of a heart attack 
from fighting the fires. But Mallacoota was really lucky in a way, you could say the whole thing's bad luck, but it could have been a lot worse. Mm. You know, 140-odd houses mm. is bad, but a whole town could have gone. Um, yeah. Just a bit of a wind shift. And we're very, very lucky to have got away with it. But we, we knew it was coming before the fire, when we knew it was on its way, uh, I counted a, a, a forestry coop um, just on the New South Wales border and I was counting 330, 40 trees to the acre. And the trees, you know, 300 mil diameter, cheek by jowl, and they're too close together. This is a, a wood chip plantation for an industry we shouldn't have. We can't afford it. Mm. We're giving the timber away um, and we're making the forest really dangerous. When I did that, I thought, um, I took my daughter and grandkids. We were all swimming in the river, having a lovely time. And the, I, I could just see the sky and I, I was feeling sick. Mm. My granddaughter was singing and I thought, I can't bear this. Mm. You know, the prospect of danger was too great. Yeah. I said, Marnie, come on, get in the car, we're going. No, Dad, we're having a swim, you know. Uh, I said, no, we're going. So I took them, took them to weed, and as I um, was passing some of those forestry coops that I'd counted, mm. I thought, I bet you I don't see you tomorrow. Yeah. And so the family were, went off to Canberra, and I came back through the fires. Most stupid thing I've ever done. I've usually been pretty careful with my life, but that was wow. everything I'd been trained to do, I didn't do. Had my two dogs in the back of the car. And I came past that coop, winding around on the highway and um, trees down everywhere, mm. road on fire. And um, I came to one of those coops and it was gone. Yeah. There was ash that high on the ground and it was snow white. Yeah. It was a surreal landscape. So those kind of commercial coops, that, that forestry there, you say we shouldn't be doing that kind of thing. What should we be doing? Ha has this led to a kind of reassessment of how we actually manage our land? Well, I don't think it has made us look at that. We've been arguing for for a decade or so that that kind of forestry is very dangerous and also not very profitable. Mm. Um, but the, it made me investigate the old Aboriginal forest. What was there prior to contact? You know, um, Bill Gamage is made of mine and we talk about that forest and he's written that beautiful book, Biggest Estate on Earth, which talks about how Aboriginal people had planned uh, the continent and planned its growth, planned its production. You know, in, incredible achievement. And we, we can't talk about using those um, skills and using that technique without acknowledging the old genius of those old people, how they planned their, their world. How did they plan it? So how, what would it have looked like more traditionally? I've been trying to give Malakuta Shire, or the Far East Gippsland Shire, a map of Malakuta from 1847, um, the first survey. And every hill, every lake, every river is in Aboriginal language. 
So McCabe, the surveyor, was accompanied by an Aboriginal person who was probably a woman called Malakuta Kitty. And um, so he was given all that language, but he also describes the country. And where Aboriginal people were growing food is where people in Malakuta are growing food now. Mm. The farmlands are basically the old Aboriginal croplands. Mm. And it was open, much more open than it is now. And the forests were full of big trees, around 10 to the acre, and food grew beneath the trees. And it's a much more complicated harvest as a result because you're within a forest and you, you might have seven or eight different tubers, you might have six or seven different grains, and they all require different treatment. And, you know, today's farmers are going to look at that and, and be aghast, you know. When we harvest, we just do one thing. When we plough, we just do one thing. <laughs> but this is complicated mm. and uh, it requires people. You know, and what capitalism hates is people. They don't like paying people. Expensive, aren't they? They're oh, terribly they are expensive. And a nuisance. <laughs> they want stuff. But our world has to look at using people mm. back on the land and providing food for themselves, not some giant like Kellogg's. I want to um, come back to that particular farming approach in a minute, but just before we leave the fire particularly, there's discussion about Indigenous land management and fire management, and that also takes a lot more people to do it. Mm. Can you talk us through the theory of that and how it works? I'd also like to mention that the East Gippsland Shire uh, refused to take possession of that map for reasons I can't understand. And it's a real shame yeah. because it's proof of Aboriginal occupation of the land and proof of land management. It's a great tool. But let's get on to the good news, which is the old Aboriginal fire regime is, is really slow. And I, um, I was taught it by an old man from Malakuta and I taught it to my son and we're both in the CFA and it is such a beautiful thing to do. You know, when we dress up to go to a fire, we, we dress up as if we're going to war. Mm. You know, we've got a helmet, we've got a visor, we've got gloves, big coats, big trousers, big boots. And really, the old Aboriginal fire was done by people with bare feet. <laughs> and if, that, if you can't walk through that fire, it's too hot. And this is why we damage Australia, because we think we've got to do it quick. Mm. It's got to be done today. And so we have canopy fires, there's destruction everywhere, animals get killed, and it's unnecessary. But once again, in order to do the kind of fire that we're doing on the farm and around the district now, you need people on the ground. So we, the other day, burnt maybe 10 acres and um, we had seven people. Now, the CFA couldn't tolerate that. Mm. Far too many people, far too little ground burn. But we can literally walk through that fire. I had my grandkids with me, and these little kids are walking backwards and forwards through the fire because it just creeps along and mm. it leaves little oases. So animals are allowed to hide in that oasis, and it's a peaceful day. The Aboriginal approach, the kind of cool burning approach, is, is a small fire that just creeps along the ground. Mm. And what's the intent, what's the difference there? What do you achieve by just doing this kind of smaller fire? 
You don't want to bake the soil for a start, because if you're going to need tense fire, you cook that really rich part of the topsoil. And in Australia, often it's only that deep anyway. Mm. And so it's a dangerous thing to do economically. You're killing soil. Mm. And so how do you recover the soil? Chemicals. It compounds, it becomes... Mm. Capitalism is happy to spend money on chemicals, but not on people. And we just need to reverse our thinking because we can build soil by this slow uh, fire. And, it's, and you don't do it one day, you do it as many days as you can mm -hmm. at the right time in the season. And uh, it's intolerable to a capitalist system to have people engaged in that kind of activity. But the old Aboriginal life must have you know, had this as a routine, you know. Mm. Everyone thinks that all Aboriginal life happens in the Northern Territory, which discounts a lot of what happens down south. But we have got film of today of um, people just chucking matches into the spinifex as a matter of course, mm. to keep the country safe, mm. not to make it dangerous, to keep it safe. This has a, a couple of positive effects. I mean, let's firstly talk about the animals. How do they respond to this kind of cool burning? How does it contrast to when you just light up the whole forest? A lot of animals are cooked in those uh, fires that the CFA and uh, DELP light today because they, they started with incendiaries. It's like Dresden, you know, let's bomb it. Mm. Get it over and done with quickly. Um, we, we had a fire uh, about two months ago and um, it was a, a lovely day and the fire went beautifully. And you always see good things in the bush when you're looking at the ground. And we were, you know, wondering what was happening. And we came across a whole lot of praying mantis. And the, they were literally walking away from the fire. And they're, they're a prehistoric creature, you know, the little... <laughs> and just walking away from the fire. We were just laughing at, at the irony yeah. of a praying mantis escaping <laughs> from the fire. It was, it was glacial. This is how slow it is. As you say, yeah. that takes time, it takes energy. I mean, it protects the canopy by just burning slowly on the ground. Mm. But what effect does it have on, for instance, the grasses on the actual, you know, is, it, is there a positive effect on those actual grasses as well? We're trying to return our farm to perennial plants. Um, the, the old people had perennial tubers, they had perennial grains, they had perennial fruit trees. You know, everyone can imagine a perennial fruit tree, but the grains and tubers were not um, planted every year. They were just encouraged, and they're encouraged from fire. Our best kangaroo grass this year was where we burnt last year, mm. and it'll happen again this spring. Our best grass will be where we've burnt. We don't want to burn there every year, but we, we know that we have to, for kangaroo grass, we have to do it every two years. Mm. That's about um, nutrient replacement. You get two or three stalks above the ground, but the root mass is like that. So it's got a huge generator of life and growth. So a, a light scorch across the top of the ground, a bit of carbon replacement, bang, up it goes. It, it's a wonderful way to farm and a lot of Australian farmers get a bad rap from Barnaby Joyce because they're much more intelligent than that. And a lot of farmers want to return to this. They can see the common sense. Most farmers love their ground. Not all acknowledge the Aboriginal uh, prehistory. 
um, unfortunately, but most people who live in the country actually like being in the country. And to think that Australians might really love their country and because of that love might want to care for it and because of our desperate need to save the earth might look for gentle ways to do it. I think it's a possibility. I hope it's not a dream. Mm. Um, we can't afford dreams. There's so much knowledge involved in this. And, and after the fires, you were awarded from WWF money for an Indigenous traditional agricultural knowledge hub. What is that working on? Is that working on communicating this kind of knowledge? It's two ways. We, we do it culturally. When we light those fires, we've got uh, people who are going through Aboriginal Yuan law. So when we light that fire, it's lit with a hand drill um, and with a ceremony, the, the appropriate ceremony. So that's the way we light it. When we're cropping, when we start up the machine and, and get ready to crop, we, you know, we do a ceremony for that as well. So we embed the culture in the practice. But yesterday we were working on um, kangaroo grass and it, it has an awn on it, which you have to get rid of. And we haven't really got the hang of how the old people did that, but we've got a machine that is doing it now. So yesterday, one of the young fellas spent all day tricking around with this machinery um, to perfect this uh, treatment of this extraordinary grain. And three Aboriginal people in the shed mucking around with machines that will probably be in this museum one day. <laughs> it's fascinating when you say we don't know how it used to be done. Because, you know, this is why you're so amazing for this particular role. Is that you're a historian. You've got this incredible knowledge of history, but, you know, you're sometimes chasing something that wasn't necessarily recorded. Like, how are you finding this ancient methods? How do you get to the bottom of how this used to be done and the purpose of it? Well, we've got a number of people on the farm who... Are, who uh, love their culture, but also love reading. And so we're reading all those old diaries and every now and then you find a description of a group of men and women uh, burning a pile of grass that has been deliberately stacked. Uh, why were they burning it? Uh, how were they burning it? What, what was the month of the year? And what was the result? And all of that is science. And we try and replicate that because this grain that we were struggling with yesterday, we harvested in January, and I think we probably should have been threshing it in February, not May. So this is a process that we're going through, and that amount of money that we got allows us to do this science in the shed mm. with three dogs <laughs> and um, cups of tea. Um, it's real science. Um, and it, it, look, it's a joy to, to be involved with it, but we are always speculating on what would the old people do now? Mm. You know, they didn't have this machine. What was the, what was the alternative? Yeah. And finding the alternative will make the machine more efficient because we, it takes us a lot of time to treat the old grain. We think that the old people were steaming, making piles of the grain and steaming it to get seed drop. Yeah. And, uh, we, we muck around with that. 
So it's kind of historical exploration. But also you're doing this for a purpose at the moment. I mean, can you explain what are you trying to achieve on the farm at the moment? What's the goal? I didn't want to do the farm. You know, it's hard work. But after Dark Emu became interesting to Australians, uh, I could see that there were chefs and bakers ringing me every day wanting this food. And I became really alarmed. I thought, here we go again. This is the new colonisation. White people having discovered Australia and taken the land have now discovered our food and they're going to take the food before Aboriginal people have had any benefit from it. So I bought the, the land and local Yuan people work on that land to grow this food. There's an environmental concern. Um, well, I'm not interested in the history, you know, making it look cute for restaurants and things like that, although it's going to be very bloody cute. <laughs> um, I, um, I'm interested in making sure that we look after the ground, so perennial grains and things are really important. The burning regime is really important. Not ploughing is crucial, but employing Aboriginal people. Mm. And making sure that when Justice Olney um, or his grandson sits in judgment of our people at a native title uh, court, will not say that you can't have this land because your culture has been washed away by the tide of history. They were his words. Mm. I never want anyone ever again in this country to say those words. Mm. I want our people to say, we've never lost contact with this food. See, mm. we've been doing it here um, all those years and we're working on information from people's grandfathers and grandmothers, um, as well as books. Mm. You know, if it wasn't for the evidence that those old people were giving us, you know, they give us tricks all the time. Um, because, because we're doing it, it, make, it forces them to remember. So we're retrieving this old knowledge just out of excitement. So you, with your son, you've started Black Duck Foods, which is, I guess, exploring these traditional foods. What are some of these foods? Like, what are the ones that you've, that have succeeded, that you've got growing well and you, you know, are creating food with? What kind of food are you developing? Well, the, the, the grains uh, we've been converting into flour because that's how the old girls used to do it. Mm -hmm. And it makes sensational bread. It's really dark, rye, and people are going to want it. You know, they already do. We, we bake for a few restaurants and things like that, and everyone gets, everyone gets very excited by it, a little bit too excited, because I want people to remember that you can't eat our food if you can't swallow the history. So you can get excited by this food, and it can be very trendy, but how are Aboriginal people going to benefit from this? Um, mm. Will we get land back? Will we get an education? Will we get good health? Will we get a house to live in? They're the, the crucial things. But our tubers that we're growing, there's a lily there which will make an Irishman cry. <laughs> it, it is so beautiful. Um, it, it's snap fresh. You could chop it up raw and put it in steamed dumplings. It's, it's incredible. And the fact that it has taken this long for people to turn their thoughts to it is um, an Australian disgrace. You're painting a very different picture of a farm, I guess. Can you compare 
your normal industrial farm that happens around Australia to what you're trying to create at your farm. And obviously there's a difference in the people involved, difference in the chemical. What are the differences overall? What is the difference look of these places? Six months. But the transformation from one to the other is six months. Uh, you, it's not a total transformation, but when we stopped grazing cattle and flogging the guts out of the land on that farm, um, the transformation took place in six months. So I've got a mate who lost everything in a fire in uh, central New South Wales, had nothing. All his equipment was gone, his house was gone, he just had the land. And he said to himself, what have I got? What can I sell? And I've, I've got to recover. What he had was Australian Aboriginal grasses. That's what came up after the fire. Mm. And he said, well, I'll, I'll harvest that. He harvested that um, and started selling it um, as seed. $1,000 a kilogram, you can make money out of that. And um, he used to have these really big tractors because he had to plough. Mm. And you have to drag this big plough across the, the ground, letting carbon get into the atmosphere. And now he's got a tractor that's smaller than mine, so 50 horsepower. Um, he's just gone smaller, 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 smaller. Um, less weight on the ground, less diesel used, greater kindness to the earth. And he's a traditional farmer. He, he's a Rotarian RSL type man, mm. but he's changed his mind yeah. because he had to. And there's a metaphor there. You know, his farm was obliterated by fire and our earth is about to be obliterated by us. Mm. We have to change our minds. It's interesting when you say that the old approach is to dig up the soil and release all the carbon. Mm. There's a lot of interest at the moment in being able to store carbon in soil. Uh, the, the traditional grasses, do they play any role in that? Are they better at doing that? Because of the root system. They, they hold the carbon in the ground but they also hold the soil together and they actively build soil. Um, and the relationship between those root systems and mycorrhizal fungus, but also earthworms and beetles and bandicoots, um, if, if we can get rid of foxes and cats and encourage bandicoots back, the, the bandicoot is the machine that uh, brings all of those things into relationship the bandicoot is a great agricultural tool. We should love them. We shouldn't make them in chocolate Easter eggs. Um, <laughs> you know, Australian children should fall in love with bandicoots. Mm. I've got dunnarts um, on my farm. I never knew I had them until I allowed the grass to grow. And suddenly I had a population of dunnarts. They're, they're like a Walt Disney invention. They're about that big and they, they hop like a kangaroo. They, they're ridiculous. Oh, yeah. but, uh, they love the grain lands and they will fight us for the grain. This little thing will charge at you because you've disturbed its, its grain. I mean, like, it's very lovely working on the farm, you know. Yeah. But having that little animal back is proof of this mesh of relationships mm. right, right across the farm. But it's no joke that the bandicoot will be seen as like the ibis in Egypt. This is the farmer's friend. Yeah. And as soon as we really start to value the bandicoot, not just 
uh, for its little digging machine activity, but for its flesh, we'll have a much better farm. I've, I've got people who write to me after having gone over to perennial grains and they send me postcards from Vanuatu saying, this is the first holiday I've had in 30 years, thanks. Yeah. Because they're not working as hard. Yeah. They're not ploughing. They're, they're not, leaving it to the bandicoots. They're, they're not doing work. the... Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like that hi-ho, hi-ho, off to work we go, we'll dig up here, we'll gouge out there. They don't do it anymore. Mm. So they go to Vanuatu. You paint this beautiful picture of this farm and you say that other people are starting to take this on. How widespread could this be? You said we got rid of the, the cattle from the land, which is obviously what a lot of people do. They just put cattle on the land. It's the simple way to do it. Mm. How big do you think this could become in Australia? I, I, th I think it's inevitable. I think, farm, you know, Charlie Massey wrote a great book, The Cry of the Reed Warbler. Um, he goes around the country talking about these things and it's, it's kind of exponential. But the first role of the great tumbler is slow but after that, mm. it, it takes over. Uh, farmers, farmers who don't have their uh, minds blocked by conservatism will see that there's advantage in this and their grandchildren will see them uh, doing it and say, that's the way, Pa, you know, you keep doing that because otherwise our earth is going to be ruined and we don't want it ruined. Mm. And 99% of people don't want the earth ruined. 1% um, of people don't care. Um, and us 99%, we've got to work really hard on keeping that together. It is going to be a revolution. Um, I don't know how long it's going to take. I'm pretty sure I won't see it. But it'll be a joyous revolution. And if we do this properly, and if we can swallow pride enough to look at the way the old Aboriginal people organised society we're, we're in for an incredibly wonderful philosophical ride because looking back at how the old people did it, I'm just, I'm just in awe of the intelligence. I'm in awe of the spirit to conceive of a society where everyone would get fed, everyone have a house, and when old, everyone would be looked after, and at night, everyone would dance together. Mm. And this is not pie in the sky, it's not romanticism. It was written down by Charles Sturt, Thomas Mitchell, air, they all mention it, that at night, um, after everyone had eaten, people would dance and sing together. How do we get people to learn of this, this culture? How do we get them to adopt it? How do we get it to have an influence in the broader society? You have to know your history. Mm. You have to accept the history and you have to accept what the Euro European mind did all around the world. This was an aberration in human development and there have been other aberrations, but this is one of them and we have to learn from it. On election night, I was blindsided by the new Prime Minister. First words he said were shush to people wanting to get on the piss and have a good time, you know, we won, we won. He said, shut up. This government is going to adopt the Uluru Statement in full. That was the first thing he said. 
Penny Wong said it five minutes later. This is our moment. Mm. Now, f forget left and right. Just forget it. Mm. Think about people. Think of someone whose heart is good enough to say that, because mm. no one else did. Mm. Malcolm Turnbull, that highly intelligent humanist, knocked back the Uluru Statement by lunchtime, mm. when it was offered to him. The Uluru Statement is the most gentle document ever written in world history, because it's full of love. Mm. Never been anything like it. Now is our chance to adopt it in full. It'll change our nation. Mm. It's amazing. It's funny because we're here talking about farming and climate and all that kind of stuff, but it's interesting that you're talking about much broader things about how society interacts with itself and how mm. it can change our politics, can change the discussion of the nation. It's like the land. We need to kind of fix everything mm. to actually advance our country. And to change capitalism, and I just think it needs to be changed. You don't need to destroy it. To change it, it's not radicalism because the old Aboriginal society was so conservative. What we need is a new conservatism. We need to be really careful about what we do, mm. not radical. To destroy the soil and then bung superphosphate on it is a radical move. Mm. We want to be more conservative than that. We want to do everything slowly, slowly. You know, the change in society from the old people was slow mm. because you need time to make sure you're right. So to do things slowly, um, has enormous merit mm. and people will get frustrated with it. People get frustrated with Aboriginal culture, you know. I see non-Aboriginal people coming to our meetings and chewing their fingers to the bone because nothing seems to be happening. <laughs> I'd like a quid for every time I've been at one of those meetings and some non-Aboriginal person has thumped the table and said, what you people need to do um, you know, we actually know what we need to do. We don't need to be told what we need to do. We just need an opportunity to do it. Mm. And, we're not, and forget race just for the moment. Think about the earth. Think about humans. Let's bring humans together and, and do something collectively for the good of the planet. I guess that is what you're up against in a sense. And, you know, you always do run into that economic argument. Is your approach to farming, can it make a buck? Is this pie in the sky or can you actually create products that will sell and will lead to employment and people getting paid? Yeah, like it, it will, but it'll be a different economy mm. and, and it'll be a slow economy. And if we follow through with what we're doing, we'll be selling the flour from seven different grains. We'll be selling uh, seven or eight tubers and they will come in different seasons. We'll be selling fruits that are that small um, in, in their season. And it's, it's a small economy. Mm. It's a more modest economy. And we'll make a sustainable living. Mm. Farming is currently really challenged by the, the climate crisis. We've seen that certain areas that used to be productive for particular grains or animals are having to move because the climate is changing in the area. These traditional grains, these traditional grasses and that, how resilient are they to the changing climate? They're resilient because they've grown up in Australia. They are Australians and they like being in Australia. They don't have to be encouraged 
to be in Australia. They know what is required. They've had all that time to get used to the, the pests, the climate and the people. Uh, they have been uh, domesticated by Aboriginal people. So they really are readily uh, um, adaptable to human involvement. And we, we notice that we're benefiting from that. We pick a, a vanilla lily and we don't lift it right out of the ground because this is what the old girls taught us. They, you can see in pictures, they've got the big digging stick. They just lift the plant like that and they harvest tubers from beneath, <laughs> put it back in the ground. Next morning when you go out, you can barely recognise the plant you lifted. They're that resilient. They're that used to our interference with them. They, they've become mates. Oh, look out, here he comes again with that <laughs> stick. It is going to work. It's just going to be very different. Mm. And uh, we won't be getting a Coles truck come from Derby with 3,000 watermelons and bringing them to Victoria. You can't, we can't do that. Mm. We cannot bring ice cream from Denmark anymore. Over. Um, in, you know, bringing the watermelons from Derby, it's like, oh, let's just get a tank full of water and squirt it with red dye and we'll call that a watermelon. It, it's ridiculous. It's 90% water. It's a stupid thing to do to the earth. Um, all of these things are going to be smaller economies, but they're going to be very efficient economies. And it, the way economists and industrialists think now, everything's got to be big. You've got to have truckloads of it at once, not a basket. Mm. Um, and as soon as we understand and accept the fact that a small economy can be a more efficient economy, and better for us all. So it sounds like it's much more of a local economy, that you eat the food that is grown in the area you are in, you mm. eat the food that's seasonal. I mean, it is kind of crazy. We're like, well, we want asparaguses, so let's fly them in from Peru or something. Yeah. You know, it's a crazy approach to food that we have nowadays. It is. Um, it, I um, milked cows on a property near Nyamurka, and um, the... The, you'd be, you know, putting the cups on cows and that and all this lovely milk's coming through. That farmer went to Coles and bought his own, bought his own milk back. Ridiculous, you know, because he wanted pasteurised milk. Um, and it, all the offal from uh, those cows went into a swamp, which would have been a pristine swamp at some stage, but it was the perfect place to grow pumpkins. He never put a seed in the ground. Like, mm. his mind was so separated from the product that he couldn't conceive of eating it. Mm. It's the way we're brought up, you know. It's the way we disassociate ourselves from the ground, even from the animal, the cow. You know, I, I knew blokes I worked for hated cows. It really does sound like you are, you are offering up a real revolution in farming and in indeed the way we uh, deal with this country, which I think is, is fascinating. And I hope that it... Uh, it grows as the mm. stuff on your farm has. Now, I just want to touch briefly on, on the next generation. You, you, you've been a teacher. Your books are read in schools throughout the country. So many young people today are growing up without the opportunity to connect to how their food is grown. How would you like to see young people engage with food and agriculture throughout childhood and their schooling? I'd like to see kids at school grow stuff. Getting kids outside the classroom is always positive for their minds. It's not just about health about building bones and, you know, the pragmatic stuff of health. 
It's about the psychology and our relationship with the, with the ground builds our mind. Um, if we're always inside, we're surrounded by artifice and we become less human as a result. And I spoke to a mob of kids yesterday and their responses, you know, they're all eight years old, you know, my favourite age <laughs> in intelligence. Um, and their solutions were just so funny and gentle about how we should behave as human because they're, they're so pure mm. in their thought. And I'd like those school teachers to get those kids growing moonong and um, growing the lilies and um, rearing bandicoots. Let's look to the future 10, 20 years from now. What will we see? What will we eat on our tables? What will have changed? How will it have changed the way we consume food and create it? Well, unless we do something about population, there'll be less uh, ground for people. So we'll be eating a lot more salad vegetables. So we'll be eating salad greens. Those mixed salads are so easy to grow. We'll, we'll be growing those, but I hope we'll also be growing kunjimwinyu, which is a, one of our salad vegetables that grows in salt water. Mm-hmm. This is a plant that's going to be very useful yeah, wow. for the world. The old people um, obviously utilise it. It's very beautiful. Chop up half a dozen raw vanilla lilies into that. Uh, have a tomato if you have to, um, and a fish, and that'll be great. We need to get rid of our hard-hoofed herds around the world. We all need to eat less meat, and I'm a great carnivore, you know. If I don't have meat in a meal, I feel like I haven't been fed. I'm old-fashioned. I am trying to change. <laughs> but our ideal meal in Australia will probably be a, a salad with a fish or um, something like that. It's funny as we as we look at twelve dollar iceberg lettuces. It seems that if we've got these things that can be built, you know, we can grow leaves in salt water. It seems like to make so much more sense to be doing yeah. that and using traditional approaches. Well, those old people again looked around and tasted everything and said, "Oh well, we'll look after this one because we can eat that." But every plant had its use, but for food. There was a lot of testing going on because kangaroo grass is really difficult to harvest and process. The old people did it for a reason, and it's gut health. Kangaroo grass has this incredible interaction with your gut, and it's because of the, I don't understand the science of it, but the biota around the seed Mm. is so interactive with our guts that the old people would have noticed that. You know, you get to see a fair bit in 120,000 years and remember stuff um, because you don't get interrupted by bombs. You know, when you're not being bombed, you can concentrate. So that's what those old people were doing in that great time of peace. They were looking at things like gut health, you know. Uh, You know, I know it sounds like a gilded romance, but (laughs) the more I look back at it, the more I think you can't, last that long without having really thought it through. Not just, you know, things like food, but how to handle the human instinct, how to handle the human animal. Because we're just humans, you know, we wake up cranky, we wake up kind, 
We wake up selfish and mean and jealous. You know, just, just people, that's the human animal. Mm. But how do, you, how do you govern that animal? Mm. And those in that great time of peace, which was created by governance, um, the, the people had the time to think, you know, if we're going to eat this kangaroo grass, how are we going to distribute it? How are we going to harvest it? How are we going to look after making sure that plant is always there? Or if it's not there because of climate change, this is why I'm a bit excited today because science, 40 years after we asked for it, has found that the old Aboriginal mounds where a kumbungi or bulrush was being processed because of a, a climatic event. Suddenly Aboriginal people found that the foods that they had been reliant on were no longer available because of drying of the continent. So they turned to kumbungi. Um, which would grow in the low-lying wet areas and learnt to process that. It's probably only, you know, five, 6,000 years ago, maybe longer. Some are saying 40,000. Um, but it was a change. So we have to be flexible um, and um, ready to change and use whatever mother can give us mm. and not, not get stuck We've got to have wheat, we've got to have wheat, we've got to have wheat. Um, Mother's not giving us wheat today. What are we going to do? What are you going to do? And working with the energy, the engine of Mother Earth, and not against it, not demanding, Mum, you said we were going to have wheat forever. No, I didn't. <laughs> you know. We've just got to be really flexible and kind, kind to the earth. Yeah. Bruce, what I love about talking to you is that we're talking about taking on these challenges that we're facing, like climate change and changes in our climate, but you are always looking back to, you know, Aboriginal history and to the past to find the solutions and try to bring them to us now. And I love seeing that and I hope that in the future we are eating the food that you are learning about. I hope we are supporting Indigenous communities through that as well. And I hope that this dream of yours has become a, a bigger dream. Thank you so much for sharing your, your knowledge and your thoughts. Please thank Bruce Pascoe, ladies and gentlemen. You can follow the program online. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to listen to the 100 Climate Conversations exhibition or join us for a live recording. Go to 100climateconversations.com. Thanks very much.